helping us to understand the grace of God, what that looks like practically, and it's been a great, great blessing to us in our lives, uh, personally, and also to this church. So we really just want to honor you, Michael, this morning. Thanks for coming again. Uh, Michael hasn't been well for the last couple of years, and we would like to encourage you to uh, continue to pray for Michael for complete healing for him. Um, he's had a neurological condition that's affected his stamina and things like that, but uh, we're just trusting that God is going to continue to heal him. So I, I'd like to ask Michael to come, and I'd like also Calvin. Do you want to come? This dashing young man is Calvin. It's one of Michael's uh, sons, and they've been traveling together for... Um, Three weeks. Three weeks throughout Europe, uh, in Sweden, and where else did you go? Switzerland, and now here in England. So uh, I'm calling them up just so that you can know who they are, so that when you have coffee afterwards, please introduce yourself and uh, make them feel at home. All right? So let's pray. I'm just going to pray for, for Michael. Uh, Father, we want to thank you for your words. We want to thank you, Lord, that your word is power. We want to thank you, Lord, that your word sets us free. It encourages us. It uh, builds us up. It renews our minds. We want to thank you, Lord, for the preached word. We want to honor preaching this morning, uh, Lord, as a central part of what we do. Thank you for preachers. Thank you for men and women that faithfully prepare every week to hear from you and to make your word simple and easy to understand and living word to us. And so I want to pray for Michael that you continue to bless him in his ministry of preaching and writing and uh, teaching others about the, the grace of God, the good news of the, of the gospel of Jesus and what that means, what that looks like. I pray to you for, for Calvin, Lord, uh, for his life, for his future. Thank you for who he is, the gifts that you've given him. And we want to speak your blessing over his life as well in Jesus' name. Thank you for being able to minister together as, uh, as a father and a son. What a, what a great privilege and joy. And Lord, I just pray that you'd continue to open your future for both of them, and we speak your blessing over their lives, their ministries, and everything you've called them to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Michael. You can give him a great round of applause. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a great joy to be with you once again. Praise God. You're a few more than I was than were here last time I was here, so you must be growing. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I want to read a number of verses to you, all about the resurrection. Um, I want to begin with something from Acts, and then something from 1 John, and something from Romans. Let me begin with Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, well, nowadays when I say that, everybody laughs at me because you don't have Bibles, you have telephones, but uh, <laughs> whatever form you've got your scriptures in. Let me read, first of all, from Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Where the apostles have been arrested and uh, they've been told not to preach, but they disregard what they've been told and they get arrested. And so Peter has to reply to these people who've arrested him. And Peter says in Acts chapter 5, let me begin at verse 29. Peter and the apostles says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. That's the phrase I want to focus on this morning. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. 
And then 1 John chapter 5 says something similar. I want to read that as well. 1 John chapter 5, where John says something again about the witness that we have to the resurrection. 1 John chapter 5 and verse uh, 9, I think it is. 1 John chapter 5. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Whoever believes in the Son of God, says 1 John 5.10, has the witness in himself. And then let me read from Romans. All of these passages are about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were baptized with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, glory, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died once forever in relation to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to speak to you this morning on how we come to know that the resurrection of Jesus is true. I really ought not to have to speak on that because you are a Christian if you do believe that and you are not a Christian if you don't believe that. That is the defining line between those who are and those who are not Christian people. There are many people who call themselves Christians but are not Christians at all. I was in Sweden a few weeks ago with my son preaching in South Sweden and I said to the congregation, which had a lot of emigrants there, many converted Muslims there and people from Iran and other countries. And I said to them, many of you people come to, Christ come to England thinking you're coming to a Christian country. Or come to Sweden thinking you're coming to a Christian country. When you get here, you find they're not so Christian after all. And all of these guys from Iran were all nodding their heads. They all know that's exactly what happened to them. They come expecting to be in a Christian country. When they get here, they find the number of people that believe in Jesus is not so many as they thought. You can be a Christian country, but half of the people are not Christians at all. And in the last couple of years in Britain, the figures have got less than 50%. For the first time ever in British history for a thousand years, less than half of the country call themselves Christians. In Sweden, it's not quite the same. Sweden is 52%. But uh, there are many who call themselves Christians, even people that go to church who are not Christians at all. And equally, there are people who are Christians but who have doubts about themselves. They say, well, you know, I wonder whether I'm really saved when I really go to heaven. 
So you get people who think they're Christians who are not. You even get people who think they're not when really they are. They're having doubts about themselves. But the dividing line, if you, if you want to know this morning whether you are or are not saved, the dividing line is whether you do or whether you don't believe in the resurrection. Only a Christian really believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's phrase, in his heart. Romans chapter 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you believe in such a way that, that it comes out, you're willing to tell anybody anywhere, you confess it, it just is perfectly obvious that you do believe that Jesus is alive from the dead, then you will be saved, says Paul. That's the defining line between those who are, who are and who are not saved. You can, you can decide right now whether you are or are not truly a Christian person, born again of the Spirit, ready to go to heaven when you die, right with God? Do you or don't you believe that Jesus was raised, literally raised, not just these spiritual influences around or there's some ghost somewhere, but literally raised in the body from the dead? Do you believe that or don't you? If you do, you are saved. You do not need to have any doubts. I'm not saying you're a good Christian. I'm not saying you're a perfect Christian, but I am saying you are a Christian. You are saved. You may not be all that you ought to be, but you are a Christian. You're in the kingdom of God. If you do believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and equally you are not a Christian, if you do not believe, you may be trying to live a good life, but you're not saved. You're not a Christian unless you truly know that Jesus was raised from the dead. So I ought not to even have to deal with that subject, but uh, on the other hand, it's good for us to know how can, we, how can we be sure? How can we know that Jesus is indeed literally and physically raised from the dead? It's not just that his spirit goes on around somewhere. It's, not that, it's more than that. It's not just that uh, he's some sort of ghost out there somewhere. It's not that. It is that literally and physically and bodily he has been raised from the dead. He's a new body. It can do things that the old body couldn't do, but uh, he is literally and physically raised from the dead. There's a body. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's in heaven, wherever that might be. Don't even know where it is, but uh, he's literally and physically in the heavenly realm. He's the king of the universe. He's a man. There's a man ruling our universe. The Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead, physically and literally in the body at the right hand of the Father. That's picture language. It's not... You don't even know what it means precisely or where heaven is precisely. But uh, it is literally true that Jesus, the man, son of God in the flesh, is the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, how can we be sure of that? How can we know that for certain? And the Bible's answer is that there are two ways in which you come to know that Jesus really is literally and physically raised from the dead. The first way is that it's a fact of history and it can be investigated. It is historically investigable. You can investigate and find out for yourself whether this literally happened in the history of our world. And the evidence is there for anybody who wants to explore it. But the second way is that you come to experience that in yourself. And the order of those two things is important. You don't begin with some funny feelings or some feeling that God is working in you. You begin with facts of history. You don't begin with your own experience because 
People have all sorts of weird experiences. You begin with facts of history. Our teaching is that on April the 7th, three o'clock in the afternoon, on a Friday in Israel, the day before Passover, Jesus was crucified. And on the, Sab on the Sabbath, the Saturday, nothing happened. Early on the Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. And these people knew it. What they say is, we are witnesses of these things. And they're not just talking about themselves. Uh, often we talk about being witnesses and we are talking about our Christian experience. You know, I witness that God is with me, he answers my prayers, that kind of thing. That's not what the New Testament means. When the New Testament says we are witnesses, they don't mean just that we're telling you about our experiences. They mean we were there, we saw it, we know this is a sure and certain fact. We will lay our lives down rather than deny that we know that Jesus is raised from the dead. They are witnessing to a historical fact. They, they were there. And only the first generation of Christians are witnesses in that sense. Those, those who were not there were not there. They were not witnesses literally. But these men who are the apostles, they are the first generation, they're saying, we are witnesses. We are telling you that we know we were there. We saw him die upon the cross. We saw them stab him by the side and blood and serum flowed out of his side. We know that he was buried. We can take you to the very place. It was the grave of Joseph of Arimathea who let his tomb be used. We know the exact place. He was dead and buried. They sealed the tomb with, by Roman guards. But then we went back a day or so later after he died. He was no longer there. Then we met him. We had meals with him. We saw him. We were with him. We watched him go up in the sky. Literally, he took off in the sky, went up six feet, 12 feet, 18 feet, disappeared in the clouds. We are witnesses that these things happened. They insist that they know that these things happened. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Not only do we witness to these things as facts of history, say these men, but also we know something of the Spirit giving us this resurrection power in our own lives. Not only is it a witness in historical events, but it's a witness in our experience by the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the greater thing. You can argue about history, say, say these men, but, but there's no way in which we can argue by what God has done for us. If the witness of men is, is great, the witness of God is stronger, said that verse I read just now. And the witness of the Spirit, our experience of the resurrection in our own lives, is enough for us to know that these things are true and sure and certain. That's the way the New Testament puts it. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about those, those two things. You want to know whether the resurrection is true. You want to know whether you can build your life upon the defeat of death in the person of Jesus. Well, these are the two ways. According to the New Testament, I'm not expounding my own opinions or philosophizing. I'm simply expounding the New Testament for you. These are the ways, says the Bible, in which we can know. First of all, we can know that these things are facts of history. Now let's think about that a bit. We are living in an age where people are losing their faith in history. I watch Mr. Trump quite a bit. And uh, I can tell you he's ignorant of history. <laughs> he really doesn't know about history. We're going to make America great, he says. 
He doesn't know what makes America great. What made America great was the separation of church and state by a man called Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island State in 1630, and he was the first person ever in the world to, to really tolerate diversity of religions in one nation. Nobody ever did that before Roger Williams, except Jesus. Jesus did it, but uh, nobody did it before Roger Williams. If anything made America great, it was separating ideology from state power. I don't think Mr. Trump even knows about it. I'm going to America next year. I'm hoping I might go and see him and tell him, but I uh, don't have much hope of that. <laughs> don't think he'd like my visit. But uh, people are very ignorant of history. Everything great in our world comes from the Christian gospel. Think about anything that's great. Where did hospitals come from? Comes from the Christian church. Where does democracy come from? Comes from John Lilburn in England. Comes from Roger Williams in America. Where does the freedom, the dignity of women come from? We are very concerned about equality of women these days. Where does it come from? Did it begin in Beijing? Did it begin in Arabia? Did it, did it begin in the Muslim world or the Shinto world? Where, where did these things come? Where did they come from? They come from the Christian church. Where did the trade union movement come from? It came from the Christian church. John Wesley had these churches in times of revival. He would put people in charge of those congregations, he would call them stewards. And what they learned in church, they then, they then applied in factories, and they called those men shop stewards. Came straight out of, out of Wesleyanism and Methodism. And it's everything great in our world comes from the Christian church. And it's true of every other country. Go to India and find out where, where education came from, where the oldest hospitals were, where the first university in the country came from. It all comes from the missionary movement. Everything great in our world comes from Jesus, really. Scientists, the early scientists in this country, they were all Christians. Isaac Newton, who discovered gravity, he spent more time reading his Bible than he did doing his science. Logarithms was invented. You know what logarithms are? They were invented by some guy who was it? forgotten who it was now, in order to help him study the book of Revelation. He did all of his calculations in the book of Revelation. He invented logarithms to help him read his Bible. These, the, all these things, they come from the Christian church. Uh, well, the world doesn't even know about it. And equally, they don't even know about their own history. Uh, you get these big atheists around these days, Dawkins and all the, all the others. They, don't, they never draw your attention to the history of atheism. Not only do you want to know about the history of the Christian church, you need, you need to know about the history of everything. Learn about the history of atheism. Has, has it been a great blessing to the world? Did atheism ever do anything similar to the Christian church? Learn about the history of Islam. Nowadays, in Britain, the teaching of the gospel is fading. It's not in the schools anymore, not very much. Now the great thing is comparative religion. My dear friends, I'm all for it. Let's do as much comparing as we can. Let's compare the religions. Let's find out the history. But we're losing all of that. You go into a bookshop these days, you'll find that the guys putting the books in the right places have difficulty. They don't know what books to put among the novels and what books to put among the history books. You'll find the history books put among the novels and you'll find the novels put among the history books. They're not quite sure which is which because people are not sure about history anymore. When you get sceptical about the Christian gospel, you get sceptical about everything. When you stop trusting Jesus, you'll find you'll stop trusting everything. You won't trust history, you won't trust your government, you won't trust society, you won't trust yourself. Skepticism brings skepticism in everything. And it's happened in history. People don't trust history anymore. 
But go back to the history of the Christian gospel. How do we know that anything happened at all? They say Julius Caesar arrived in Britain in BC 55. How do we know that's true? How do we know that anything's true? Well, the answer is the same thing that we have here. We are witnesses of these things. Somewhere, in any kind of historical event, there'll be somebody who's there. And they will tell you about it. They tell me that I was born on the 30th of June, 1942. Actually, I can't remember it. But that's what they tell me. I believe my mum. She told me I was born on the 30th of June. Well, I trust her. I believe her. That's the only way I know. I wouldn't know otherwise. I can't remember it. How do we know anything? Someone somewhere tells us. There's some witnesses. Some people were there. And then various things happen that confirm that what we were told is true. Or maybe they, can, they confirm that what we were told was not true. Later on, we find out about these witnesses, and we find out whether what they say is true or whether what they say is false. My dad didn't see me until I was four years old. He was fighting some battle in the middle of India somewhere and uh, got shot and uh, came back at the end of the war and saw me for the first time. That's what I was told. But actually, I've been to that place where he was in India. And there's a cemetery there where 2,000 UK soldiers were buried because of what happened. That's where my dad was. You can go to these places and you confirm things and you find out that it's true. That's what happens with the gospel. How do we know that Jesus is what he said he was? Well, every major historian in the ancient world mentions Jesus. That's a bit surprising. Why should they mention Jesus? These Roman guys, Tacitus, Suetonius, these various Roman historians, they all mention Jesus. Why should they? I mean, Jesus is some preacher in Israel at the end of the Roman Empire. He was totally unimportant in the eyes of the Romans. So why should anybody ever mention him? And the Jewish historians, Josephus, the great Jewish historians, the rabbis, they say, we hanged him on Passover Eve. Not only did they mention it, they mentioned the exact day, Passover Eve. How come, how come all these ancient historians mention Jesus? Well, the answer is because there were so many Christians around. There were thousands of Christians there were Christians from Rome on the day of Pentecost. Remember, they came from every country around the world, the Mediterranean world, there for Passover, including people from Rome, and they all went back home afterwards. You can be sure there were Christians in Rome within a couple of weeks of Jesus dying upon the cross. And uh, they grew and they multiplied, and there were thousands of them. In AD 64, the city of Rome caught fire. And uh, the Roman Emperor Nero was blamed for it. He, he fancied himself as an architect. He was quite keen to destroy the whole of, whole of Rome and build it all over again. And so when Rome caught fire, they thought maybe it was Nero who set, it, set fire to it. And Nero had to get himself off the hook and get himself out of trouble because everybody was accusing him. So what he did was he blamed the Christians. He said, well, these Christians, they're all saying the world will end with fire. It was them. They wanted to end the world by fire, as, as their Bible says. And so persecution grew, broke out against the Christians, and thousands, thousands of them. The Roman historian Tacitus says they lit up the streets of Rome with the burning bodies of Christians. They burnt these guys to death, they threw them to the lions, they hang them on the lamppost in the city of Rome. And so the question came up, where do all these Christians come from? 
And they started saying, well, how comes this weird cult in Rome with thousands of them, where do they all come from? And they started investigating them, and they only ever come up with one name, Jesus. And they never say a single thing that disagrees with the New Testament. It comes from Jesus. He's worshipped as God by these Christians. He was put to death under Pontius Pilate. We have his records in our archives. And the rabbis even say, we hanged him on Passover Eve. They get the exact day right. They're even clearer than the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, you're not absolutely sure precisely when Jesus died in relation to Passover. Was it he kept Passover on a Thursday? But sometimes it seems he died on Passover on a Friday. You're not exactly clear. Actually, the records coming from the Jews is more clear than the New Testament. They say exactly, we hanged him on Passover Eve, they say. Everybody knows this story, and they, there's no other alternative explanation. Nobody ever comes up with any other name. And they never disagree with anything that the New Testament says, except for one thing. They don't believe in the resurrection. They say these Christians, they worship him as raised from the dead. They know that, although they themselves do not believe it. But they know that the Christians believe it. And they all come up with the same story. And the same person, Suetonius, who talks about riots in Rome because of the Christians and the Jews, he's the same person by whom we know about Julius Caesar. The record of Julius Caesar is as strong as the records about Jesus. So these things are our facts of history. And then think of the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that nobody was expecting the resurrection? They all knew then, as we know today, dead men don't recover. When somebody's dead and buried, I'm sorry about to say, but you're not going to see him again, not just yet. In the final day you will, but not just yet. Dead men don't rise. And you may say, well, today we're modern people. In those old days, 2,000 years ago, people believed all sorts of weird things, so they believe all this nonsense. We're sophisticated, scientific people today. We wouldn't believe stuff like that today, though they believed it then. No, that's not true. People knew as much in the first century as they know today that dead men don't rise. Nobody in the, in the first century believed in the resurrection. They may have believed that some ghosts were floating around somewhere, but nobody in the ancient world believed that dead men come back to life. Read, read the New Testament. You can see it everywhere. Jesus says, Jesus predicted what would happen. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'll suffer many things. I'll be crucified. And the third day I'll be raised from the dead. But nobody believed him. They, they thought he must be talking about some parable or something. They, they, they weren't expecting the resurrection at all. And you remember when Jesus meets those two men on the road to Emmaus, if you know your Bible, and they say to him, we had hoped. Gee, have you not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? They're not talking about him as the Lord anymore. They're just using the name Jesus now. They've stopped calling him the Lord. Haven't you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? They've they're not giving him any great title now. They've given up hope. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They, they have totally given up any hope. And when Jesus is crucified, he was crucified at, began at 9 o'clock in the morning, died 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. They have to get Jesus buried quickly because the Sabbath is about to start. They, they rush to get him buried. And, and they want to anoint the body, they want to look after, give him an honourable 
burial. No one's expecting him to come back. No, nobody's expecting any kind of resurrection. And when the women see, meet Jesus and they rush back and tell Peter, they think, oh, this, these, these women, they believe all sorts of silly things. They, they will not take any notice of these women. They think they're just, they're just uh, being a bit foolish. Thomas says, no, I'm never going to believe it. And if I put my hand in his side, I'll never believe such a thing. The, the idea that the people would naturally believe in the resurrection is nonsense. Nobody was expecting any kind of resurrection. And then think of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was the great enemy of the Christian faith. He hated Christians. And he tells us so. He says, I was, I was a persecutor. I was injurious, he says, as the old King James puts it. He admits that he was a persecutor. He's there when Stephen is being stoned to death. And he ruins his life academically and in terms of his being a big figure in the nation. He ruins his career. He's the star pupil of Gamaliel, the great lecturer. He's a brilliant man. You only have to read his letters to the Romans or Ephesians and you can see as well as being a man inspired by the Spirit, you can also see that he's a brilliant man in himself. He's a, he's a genius. Everybody knows that, who knows anything about these things. I was in Waterstone's bookshop the other day in uh, Piccadilly in London, and there was a series of books on great people there. Uh, Karl Marx and Plato and all these, these great men, little books and all the great heroes. I noticed Moses was there. There's a book on Moses. You get books like this about the Apostle Paul, even secular people. They'll talk about, about Buddha and Plato and Karl Marx and Freud. Then they'll say Paul and Moses. Even, even secular men will realize that these people are spiritual giants and geniuses. There is Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, the, an upper-class person. His father did something for the Romans. He was born as a Roman citizen. He's an upper-class guy. He's got, he's got plenty of money and wealth. He's got a star career as the brilliant student of Gamaliel. And he, he totally ruins his life by quitting all of that and joining these Christians. What, make, what makes a man who's a brilliant student who's going to, we'd, we'd have heard of Saul of Tarsus even if he'd never become a Christian. We, we, we would talk about Gamaliel and all these Jewish rabbis and Saul of Tarsus would be there. He would have been a brilliant man even if he'd never become a Christian. But he ruins his life academically and as a significant figure and starts being persecuted himself. He who was the persecutor now begins to suffer persecution. What makes him quit everything is because he meets Jesus and knows that Jesus is raised from the dead. You know the story? He's going down that road to Damascus. He's breathing out threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And suddenly he sees something, this bright, shining light. He's thrown to the ground. And there, in the midst of the burning light, is, is a face. And he says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the voice from the shining glory says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And his total life is changed. He, he can't doubt that. And when he gets to Damascus, the very place where he was going to deal with these Christians and get rid of them, he stands up and he says, actually, I, I now know he is the Son of God. And he starts being persecuted. <coughs> what makes a man quit his entire career? A brilliant genius of a man, as everybody who knows about these things knows. What makes a man quit? throw everything away and join some 
cult of fishermen and tax collectors, junior tax collectors in Israel. Some place far, so far on the end of the world, you're, not, not, you're a bit surprised it's not fallen off. This, this brilliant man suddenly identifies himself with a carpenter's son who was crucified and joins these Christians consisting of fishermen and women making their living on the streets. And I mean, why, why should Saul of Tarsus do such a thing? Because he knows that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so these men say, they, they say, we know. We didn't believe these things. We were not thinking of this at all. And we were forced to, to, to know. We met him. We saw him dead and buried. And that tomb was empty. There were guards there. We know all about it. And then, then we met him. And we ate with him. And he taught us things. And, and he stayed with us for six weeks before he went back to the glory. We know. We are witnesses of these things. And these men, of the 12 apostles, 10 of them were martyred for their faith. Ten of them died rather than take back their story. W were they dying for a lie? Were they, were they cooking up some story but laying down their life as a result? Would you die for a lie? Would you, would you cook up some story, some invented tale, uh, if it would cost you your life? And ten of them, not Judas and not John, who lived to an old age, but the other ten... They all died for their faith, their insistence that Jesus, they knew, was raised from the dead. And so they know these things because they know them as events and they are witnesses. They testify that they were there and they know, which is the same reason that we know about anything in history. How do we know that Julius Caesar came to this country in, AD, in BC 55? Well, he wrote about it. I did Latin at O level half a century ago. Here in this country, they made me do Latin, at, uh, Latin for O level. I read Caesar's Gallic Wars in Latin, read all about it. Veni, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Julius Caesar, he arrived in this country, wrote, wrote a book about it. And here, all over St. Albans, there are these little Roman artifacts that prove it really is true. This testimony to something that happened. We were not there, but we, we read the testimonies, we read the story. Why should anybody believe the story of Julius Caesar arriving in this country in 55 BC, but not read the story about, believe the story about Jesus? The story about Jesus is stronger. And the same people who wrote about Julius Caesar wrote about Jesus, Suetonius. Why should we believe one but not believe the other? Why, why do men believe about Julius Caesar but not believe about Jesus? There's only one reason. The only reason is prejudice. The evidence is no different. In fact, the evidence for Jesus is stronger. The only reason why they won't believe it is, is they say, no, no, we can't believe stuff like this. In other words, they, they deny it in advance. They deny it even before they consider the facts. They've made up their minds in advance. They you know these things don't happen. But they never look into it to see whether maybe these witnesses are not credible. So those are the first reasons why we believe in the resurrection. It's overwhelmingly substantiated by people who know and tell us they were there and they witnessed these things. However, despite all that I've just said, maybe we still feel a bit uncertain. You know, can, can we really trust history? Can, can we really be sure? And even though the evidence may be overwhelmingly strong, you still have got doubts, maybe. And this is why the New Testament says, 
Not only are we witnesses, but so is the Holy Spirit. And if the testimony of men is strong, the testimony that comes from God is even stronger, and he who believes has the witness in himself. Not only is there a testimony outside there in sheer objective facts that you can go and look at, you can also have the testimony in yourself. Because the teaching of the New Testament is that the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead can raise you, raise you spiritually. And that's the passage I read just now from Romans chapter 6. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you are united with Jesus. You begin to partake of everything that is true of Jesus. The Bible says if Christ died, you could say it in two ways. You could say Jesus died for you. But you can put it another way. You can also say you died in Jesus. You can put it both ways round. Or you could say Jesus came alive for you. But you can also put it the other way around, that you come alive in Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus raises you. It does for you spiritually what it did for Jesus physically. Now that you can, you can know even more than you, you can know about facts of history. And this is the teaching of Scripture. Ephesians talks about the exceeding greatness of God's power. And it goes on to say this was the power that was at work when it raised Jesus from the dead. But then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 will say, and you, and you too, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised you. <coughs> Even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, God, God raised you, and he put you, and he seated you in the heavenly places. By grace you have been saved. That same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you. And you might not be sure whether you really can trust these facts of history or not, but you, do, you can know and you will know that God will raise and save you and that you will come alive. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins and ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and were following the course of this world, as Ephesians says, that you can know a power that comes into your life which raises you from the dead. Not physically, not yet. One day you'll even know that. One day you'll even know what it is to be raised in final glory, but, but even before you get there, you can be raised even now. You can have a taste of the resurrection power in your own lives. And that's why the, the New Testament says, well, we are witnesses, but, but so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can so work in our lives that we experience the resurrection, that we know something about this resurrection power. Now, I want to just dwell upon that. I'll try not to keep you too late. I promise to let you go before midnight. But, uh, <laughs> but the teaching is that you're joined on to Jesus. And the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, will do something to you. And it will raise you from the dead spiritually. It will enable you to live a life that you were never able to live before. This is why Paul begins, what, what shall we say? Can, shall we continue in sin? Now that we're saved, can we go on in the old way? No, it's not possible. Don't you know, says Paul, you've been united with Jesus in his death. You've been united with Jesus in his, re in his resurrection. Reckon yourself to be alive unto God. You've got a resurrection life in you. And that's why you cannot, it is entirely imp impossible for you to go on in the old way. Shall we continue in sin? No, it's not even possible. Why? Because we've been united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Resurrection power comes into you. And the teaching is 
<coughs> that you are united with Jesus. One way the New Testament puts it is to say that the church is one body and we are members of his body. We are fused into Jesus. I like to put it like this, so that this, this might be a bit of a Kenyan illustration, but I like to put it like this. You're driving along the streets of Nairobi, and you have a puncture. You, your car's breaking down, and your puncture's gone. What do you do? Well, you pull into the nearest garage. You unscrew your wheel. You leave it with the garage. And you say, mend it for me. I'll come back in half an hour. Put your spare wheel on. And uh, you come back an hour later, and they've done it for you. What happens if you injure your finger? You slam the car door, it catches your finger, your finger's crushed and bruised, you've got a damaged finger. What do you do? You go to the hospital, you unscrew your finger, you leave it there for an hour and say, just repair that for me, I'll come and collect it back in an hour. No, no, you can do it with a wheel, but you can't do it with your finger. How comes you can do it with a car wheel, but you can't do it with your finger? Well, because the... Unity of your finger is much closer. It's not screwed on. It's fused into your, into your body. And you can't unscrew it. It's, it's, it, it. The depth of its unity is too great. So you can't unscrew it and leave it somewhere. It's fused into you. And the Bible says we are one body. We are fused into the Lord Jesus Christ. All the blood like the blood vessels of your body going into your finger, like the nerves of your body going into your limbs and your faculties and your fingers. It's the same kind of unity. You are in Christ. or joined on to Christ. Anything that's happened to him has happened to you. If he's dealt with sin, you've dealt with sin. If he's seated in the heavenly places, you're in the heavenly places. If he's risen from the dead, you're risen from the dead. You are fused into Christ. And even when he comes again, you will come again with him. You are in Christ. So it means this resurrection power is in Christ. <coughs> How does it work? It works, says Romans, and I've got Romans 6 in mind. It works by reckoning it. It says in Romans chapter 6, don't you know that you are in Christ? You've been placed by the Spirit into Christ. You must consider yourselves, or the Greek word is often translate, translated reckon. You must reckon yourself to be alive unto God, to have died to sin and to be alive unto God. And the key word there is the word reckon. Reckon yourself. It's not quite the same as, as feel. I see there's a little oil here. I could unscrew it. I could taste it. I could hear it, I could smell it, I could touch it, be very greasy. I could feel it and, and know about it. If I put it in my pocket, I can't hear it anymore. I can't see it. I can't taste it. I can't touch it. But I reckon it's still there. You see what the word reckon means? It means you, you, you take it as being true, whether you can feel it or not. You take it as being true. You know it. Whether you feel it or not, you believe God. And God says that you are in Christ. God says you can change your life. 
God says you don't need to continue in sin because you have the power and the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you want to know how it will work, it works when you reckon on its being there. When you know, not because you feel so strong, but because the Bible tells you. You know because God tells you that you are alive in Christ with a resurrection power. When you believe it and act upon that being true, you'll find it works. And it begins to flow in your life. You're being tempted, maybe, to steal something or to lie or to boast or to tolerate impure thoughts or whatever. And it's a battle. You, you want to be a Christian, you want to live a different sort of life, and, you, and you're struggling. You really often fail. But if you will reckon that you don't need to fail, if you will go through that little bit of suffering, the suffering involved in resisting temptation, you really are addicted, and it's always tough to break an addiction. And you struggle with that thing. But if you will reckon that you know that you have resurrection power in you and you go on and you do not yield, you'll find that resurrection power is there and you start breaking the power of sin. I had a man come to see me a couple of days ago. He was a Muslim who got saved and he had grown up in Iran or somewhere where he was told he must never touch alcohol. And then he got saved, he came to this country, and people began to tell him, Christians began to tell him, you know, you're free, you can do what you like, if you want a glass of beer, it's all right, it's okay. And that people began to tell him that he was free now. And he began to take his freedom with regard to alcohol a bit more seriously than he should have done. And he began to start feeling he could do things out with regard to alcohol that he couldn't have done in Iran. Only the thing got a bit stronger than he realized. And finally, he was drinking more and more and more. And he came to me, he said, well, since I've become a Christian, I'm more in difficulty with alcohol than I ever used to be when I was a Muslim. And he was asking for help. He was getting into an addiction. And I said to him, I said many things to him, but one of them was that he needed to, to go through a bit of suffering. That when you're in any kind of addiction to sin, it is painful to break it and you suffer. But what the New Testament says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, is that you arm yourself with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. 1 Peter chapter 4, Jesus suffered in the flesh, and you arm yourself with the same way of thinking. You, you, you say what Jesus said. Jesus said, I've got to go through this cross. I've got to go through this uh, suffering. And for the joy that's set before me, I will endure the cross, despising the shame. And he had this thought that if he could get through the cross, he would accomplish salvation for the world. And Peter says, now, you're going to be the same way. You've got to arm yourself. You've got to go through that battle. But you do it knowing that when you've suffered a little bit, there's resurrection the other side. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. If he could get through this cross, there was resurrection the other side. And that's what you do with regard to sin. You, 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 you face it, you say, I can do this, there's resurrection power there, I can get through this, and you endure the suffering, and you go through it, and you will find it works. 
you hold on moment by moment by moment until suddenly the temptation goes and you've come through and the next time it happens it's a little bit easier because you've been through it once now you can go through it again <coughs> only it gets a bit easier and the third time it happens it's easier still and the fourth time and the fifth time and the sixth time it's getting easier and easier and easier and finally you've broke the addiction you've done something that you can't do except for the resurrection power of Jesus as long as you will reckon it will be there you reckon you go through that cross I could put it that way you go through that suffering <coughs> but you reckon yourself to be alive unto God you, you some, something will say to you no you can't deal with it and you say to yourself yes I can deal with it I'm alive I'm, I've got the Holy Spirit I'm born again I'm a new creature I'm in Christ resurrection power is there in me I reckon it's going to be there for me and you endure what you've got to go through and you'll find this power there you find that you can break the power of sin you can deal with things that are a problem in your life and the, the witness of the spirit of the resurrection in you makes you know that the whole gospel is true. You know this Christian faith is true and real. That Jesus is alive from the dead. And the reason why you know it is that same resurrection power is in you. He who believes has the witness in himself. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. He's there as well. And we know his witness. We know that this resurrection power of God is real and we live this way. That's how you get to know that the resurrection of Jesus is real. It is investigable. It is a sheer fact of history. These men of the New Testament, this first generation, and incidentally, the books of the New Testament only got into the New Testament if they were first generation books. They were Christian books written just a few years after the New Testament, but they're not in this Bible. This Bible consists of the first generation eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This first generation of apostles chosen by Jesus who were witnesses of the resurrection, they are the people who were given the gifts of inspiration that led them to write our New Testament. They are all witnesses, literally, of the historical events around the death and resurrection of Jesus. They laid down their lives rather than deny the factuality of these things. They know. But if you will put your faith in what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. This is, how, this is why 1 John begins the way it does. This is how 1 John begins. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched, that which we know. You see, these men, they know these things. They've touched them, seen them, heard them, handled them. They know. And they are swearing to you that these things are true and they will lay down their lives rather than deny them. You begin there. The gospel, this is what makes the gospel different. It's not true of any other faith or religion or ideology or political party or whatever you have. It is only the Christian gospel that begins with facts of history. No other faith does that. Islam doesn't believe that the Son of God came in on a particular date. No, no other religion believes that someone was literally, physically raised from the dead on a particular day with eyewitnesses being there. It's only the Christian faith that says things like that. All other religions or philosophies of life, including atheism, they're all ideas. 
There are laws or rules or routines or ideas that people have. The Christian faith is not ideas, not, not initially. It's not even experiences initially. The Christian faith begins with facts of history. It is good news. It is a gospel, good news. It announces things that God has done in history. God sent his son. We call this year 2017, 2017 years after something happened with a few mistakes of, arith of arithmetic along the way. It's about six years out. But uh, these are facts of history. 2,000 years have gone by since certain things happened, and we date our calendars by these events that took place. 30 years later, Jesus was raised from the dead, and there were eyewitnesses there who testify and insist that they know these things are true. But when you put your faith in those things, when you see what Jesus was doing upon the cross, what was happening upon the cross, the answer is Jesus was being cursed. The curse of God against sin was falling upon Jesus so that it does not need to fall upon you. He was bearing your sin in your place. And the whole universe was becoming dark. Everything and everyone abandoned Jesus. His enemies were against him. His friends all ran to turned aside from him. God would not speak to him. And Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very universe frowned upon him. The sky turned dark. Even, even there, the, the, the sky even frowned upon Jesus as he's hanging upon the cross. The very sky turns dark as he's hanging there. Everything and every person is, as it were, against him. He's bearing the curse of God against sin that you don't have to bear the curse of, of God against sin he's being punished that you don't have to be punished I think I could say he's going through hell that you don't need to go through hell he's living the life that you should have lived he's dying the death that you should have died he's there in your place and if you believe in those historical facts believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and tell everybody anywhere who wants to know you're confessing your faith that you know that Jesus is raised from the dead, that resurrection power will be in your life. You'll be able to conquer sin. You'll be able to find your purpose of God for your life. You'll find there's a calling upon your life. You'll find there's a plan and a purpose that God has got for you. You'll find he answers your prayers, not giving you everything you want all the time, but in one way or another, he'll hear your prayers. He'll rescue you. He'll change your life. He'll give you power. And you'll say, I know, I know that Jesus is raised from the dead because he's raised me. He's given me that same kind of power. You'll know something of that power in your own life by the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit working in our lives. He who believes has the testimony in himself. You begin with the facts. You begin with the events. You put your faith in Jesus the Saviour. You give him your life. You turn away from sin and you give him your life. And you'll experience resurrection power coming in your life. You won't always feel that way. You'll sometimes find it's a great battle. But if you will go through the battle, if you will go on reckoning yourself to be quit from the old kingdom of sin and to be alive unto God, 
you'll know that resurrection power, the power of the flesh. As Paul says, the power of the old person, the old person you used to be, that person's gone. The person you once were, he goes, she goes. That person's no longer there. You become a new person in the Lord Jesus Christ with the resurrection power of Jesus there in you as you live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for you. That's how you know that the resurrection of Jesus is real. Praise God. Let's stand and let's pray together as we move on this morning. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for this amazing news that Jesus is alive. Alive with power, alive by the Holy Spirit, alive in the body, ruling the universe, king of our universe, ruling history, ruling our lives. I pray that we know, may know this resurrection power, work faith in us, teach us to know these things, teach us to reckon ourselves to be quit from sin and alive unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue with us, we pray today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Please be seated. Now we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. We go straight on into the Lord's Supper. So you have to teach me how, tell me how you do it. You've got everything here. All right. Well, let's remember how the Lord's Supper came into being. Thursday night, a few hours before Jesus was arrested, last time Jesus would ever have any time to spend on earth, any time he'd have to spend here on earth in his body with his disciples. He's not thinking about himself. I wonder what you would be doing if you knew that your life would end in a few hours' time. I reckon you'd be repenting a lot. I reckon you'd be on your knees pleading for mercy. I reckon you'd be uh, worrying about yourself. Jesus was doing none of those things. When he knew that he just had hours to live, he was not thinking of himself at all. He was thinking of his disciples and what they needed to know. And he would say, it's to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And you'll know me more than ever by the Holy Spirit. But there was one thing that he wanted them never to forget. There was one thing he wanted them always to come back to again and again and again. And that was his death upon the cross. And so in the middle of the Passover meal on Thursday night, he suddenly quits following the routine of the Passover, which had roast lamb and stuff like that upon the table. And suddenly he picks up a piece of bread, not a piece of meat, but a piece of bread. And he says, this bread stands for my body. I'm about to bear your sins in my body upon the tree. I'll be hanging there and it'll be real. It'll be an event. I'm actually going to die for you. And this bread is substantial. You can touch it. You can feed it. You can live upon it. Stands for my body. I'm literally going to die for you in the body. And you're going to feed upon me. You're going to live upon my dying for you upon the cross in the body. Then he picks up the glass of wine or, or the vessel of wine. And he says this cup is the new covenant. They're meant to be celebrating the old covenant with Moses and Israel. But he picks up this cup. <coughs> and he says this cup is the new covenant in my blood, not the blood of some Passover lamb 2,000 years ago, but in my blood. I'm about to shed my blood. I'm about literally to die for you. And so do this, carry on doing this 
in remembrance of me. The one thing that you are never, never to forget is that you live upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is just the proof that the cross works for God. If Jesus had never been raised from the dead, you'd always be wondering, well, did this, was this death really a payment for our sins? Did God really accept it? Or was it just that the end of the matter and Jesus died, finish? Was it really accepted by God? Remember when the high priest of the Old Testament went into the tabernacle, the tent, the Holy of Holies, on Passover day, no, on the Day of Atonement, I should say. Did you, did you know that they wore a long gown, a long blue gown, and at the bottom were little bells and dried pomegranates, which were noisy. They went rattle, rattle, rattle. And they, they were there upon the bottom of the priest's robe so that when he, when he went inside the Holy of Holies, right inside behind the curtain, inside the Holy of Holies, to give the blood that atoned for sin. You wanted to know whether God would kill him. I mean, to walk into the presence of God is dangerous. And uh, it's full of smoke, so you couldn't see the glory of God. But uh, God was there, revealing himself. And so the great question is, would, would God accept the sacrifice for sin? Would he still be alive? But as he walked around inside, the bells upon the road went jingle, jingle, jingle. And the dry pomegranates went rattle, rattle, rattle. And you knew that he was alive. And you would say, oh, he's alive. He's alive. The, the, the sacrifice has been accepted. And that's where we are. We hear the, the rattle, rattle, rattle. We know that Jesus is alive. We know that God's raised him from the dead. And we say, oh, the sacrifice for our sins has been accepted. It's the resurrection that proves that the cross of Christ is accepted as the sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus said, don't ever forget that. Live upon that. Live upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you pray. Don't know how you pray. How do you pray? Do you say, well, Lord, you know, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I go to church sometimes and I uh, hope you really hear me. Doing my best. No, no, don't pray that way. And you pray. You say, Lord, there's no reason why you should hear me at all except that Jesus has died for me. You pray in the name of the one who's died for your sins. And you come boldly, confidently trusting that God will hear you because your sins have been dealt with, dealt with by the blood of Christ. Live upon the cross of Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper is here to tell us. Don't ever forget, do this as often as you meet together. In this way, said Jesus, in remembrance of me. With your mind focused upon me, remember that I died for you. Remember that I'm alive for you and live all the time upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we have this little ceremony in church. Let's pass, how do we do it? We call people forward to the elements, is that right? Thanks, Michael. So we're going <clears> to <throat> break bread together. <coughs> Excuse me. There's four tables, two at the front, two at the back. Please go and serve yourselves, and let's pray with each other and encourage each other as we remember these things this morning. Can we do that? And then I'm going to call us back. We're going to sing one more song together. And then we're going to have some coffee and enjoy fellowship. All right? But thank you, Michael. It's been absolutely wonderful. God bless you. Thank you so much.